Welcome to another ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Seb Lozier, and this week we hear from one player already thinking about life after tennis in the media, no less. We also meet two top Russians, both looking to put the finishing touches on what's been a fantastic 2021. But first, with his book about Roger Federer, aptly named The Master, having recently hit the New York Times bestseller list, international sports writer Chris Clary sat down with Jill Kravis to talk all about it. Well, I mean, the book was 20 years in the making, really. I mean, I interviewed Roger the first time and really met him formally in 2001 Mm. when uh, the Swiss played the U.S. in Davis Cup in Basel, which is Roger's home city. And basically, Roger destroyed the U.S. And they had some good players like Todd Martin, J.M. Michael Gamble. Andy Roddick actually made his debut in that match as a as a dead rubber, but he was there. So it was kind of this moment in time, and Roger was just unbelievable. And that was when I just sensed at that point the guy was going to be a future Wimbledon champion. What, what, what did you sense? Well, it was an indoor court. Obviously, it wasn't grass, but just to see the way he was moving around the court and flowing to all different sections, and he seemed to have all the shots, all the spins. And it, just, it was just an elegance and a, and, a, and a grass court flow to his game, and I could just transpose it with my eye to – to Wimbledon I never make those kind of predictions but yeah. just watching my just I kind of blurted out and this is pre-Twitter right so yeah, <laughs> you, I know. you tweet it now but now yeah. you used to say things actually yeah. and it was uh yeah he's gonna win several Wimbledons you can yeah. just I could just feel it anyway so the book was something that I didn't think about writing for a long long time but I, over the years I got a chance through working for the New York Times and the International Herald Tribune to uh, to speak to Roger in depth a lot of times. Yeah. I think it was more than 20 in the end. I was going to say, over you 20 years. the most insight into Lots him. of time. Yeah. I mean, people have known Roger for longer than I have, for sure. I know Renee Stouffer wrote his book about Roger from his early career and everything. But I really have had a privileged seat to his career, and not just him. I mean, it's been this whole era in men's tennis with yeah. Novak and Rafa. And I was based in Europe when they started out, all those guys, so I was really able to see them at the beginning of their careers and, and sort of see them on their own turf. I mean, I've been to Serbia, I've been to Spain, I've been to Switzerland to sort of see where they all come from. And I just felt like if I didn't do it, I was going to really regret yeah. it. Yeah. Because I just knew it was such a special situation with the access and also with um, having done a whole generation of men's players as a journalist before with Pete and Andre and, um, and Jim Courier and all that generation. I kind of grew up as a journalist following those guys. So I was kind of ready to take on this generation as a more mature writer, I think, and and a, and a observer. And so I really felt like if I didn't do it, I was going to be kicking myself. So I got to it, but it was not easy. It yeah. was just a lot of material to marshal. I had so many transcripts from Roger's interviews with our paper and also um, with Rafa and Novak. And also just I wanted to go back and do it the right way and, yeah. and re-report it. So I had talked to over 80 people just for the book itself yeah. to try to get a sense of what people thought about Roger, especially looking back now, now that they had this sort of wisdom in the rearview mirror. And uh, that was the most gratifying part for me. That and watching the old matches. Yeah. That was a blast. Yeah. To go back and watch. I'm that. sure. Yeah, yeah, just to go back and like, watch Safin, yeah. Federer at the Australian Open, that great semifinal. Or Leighton. see and, the passion in your Yeah, yeah. Leighton and Roger yeah. back in the early days. And those were matches I'd forgotten about yeah. to some degree, at least visually. And so it was really a treat to go back and do yeah. that. I mean, I think watching those three in particular, um, Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer, I mean, obviously their tennis speaks volumes, but being able to talk to them and being able to get that insight, what do you think was so special for them to have, to be in this situation where they're all, you know, even at the Grand Slam level right now, but what do you think has been so special about that, that those three? You know what's really interesting? I mean, just, uh, as it may not be completely related to that exact question, but what really struck me about this whole thing was seeing how much they evolved as people mm-hmm. and in the public eye because I really caught them early. 
very, very beginning of their sort of prominence in the pro game. And to sort of see how they became more and more comfortable with that, how they grew into the role, it almost became what people expected of them. They wanted to live up to that. And I think, obviously, we all know that none of them would be as good a player as they became without the other two. I don't right. think that's pretty clear. Right. It just, they just they pushed each other like a Venus and Serena situation in their own house. Um, it's Those guys were the factors that the other guys had to deal with. They knew they had an edge over everybody else mm. almost all the time. Yeah. And Andy Murray had his moment, too, for sure. But, I mean, I think... Uh, those were the motors for all the other, all those guys. And then watching, so that's an interesting point because now I want to go into sort of like the players now that are coming up. Of course, those three are still around and Annie's playing some great tennis after his surgery. But the, of the ones that you've been able to speak to, because you've spoken to a lot of players, is there anyone that reminds you of maybe youngsters that are coming up that, that are willing to accept that expectation that's on them? You know, the guy who reminds me a little bit, I would say, of, uh, of Roger is actually Felix Ojeda-Yassim okay. in terms of just sort of the way he approaches the sport, the way he approaches people, mm-hmm. seems to have a lot of empathy, mm-hmm. seems to want to do things uh, you know, pretty methodically the right way, seems like he's got a good career plan, seems to pick people carefully and be smart about that. So I, I definitely get a Roger sense, and there's also the multilingual aspect there too, yeah. like, like a lot of Canadians. But Felix has a certain uh, inherent dignity to him. I, I can sense that when you're around him. I don't think he's maybe as naturally talented a player as Roger, but in terms of the personality, um, maybe he sits a pass a little bit with Novak, only in the sense that they're both kind of questers, it would seem. Novak is definitely a, a searcher type personality yeah. from being around him. I mean, it's been to his you know, great advantage as a player, maybe, but maybe to his detriment as a personality, he's a little harder to get you know, a, a handle on who he really is, and he's changed a lot over the years. He'd tell you that himself. Stefano definitely seems like that kind of guy who'll be on a quest for personal growth throughout his whole career in that way. Yeah. And Rafa, the only person around me of Rafa is Leila Fernandez, <laughs> which is not great. on the ATP tour. That's but great. this there's a style, yeah. you know? Like every yeah. point is a separate entity, a little yeah. battle unto itself. And if you lose it, you're on to the next battle. That intensity. And the lefty and the spin and all that. But I, 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 don't, that. I don't, I mean, you can talk about Alcaraz, but very different style of game and everything else than Rafa. So, I mean, yeah. I think uh, that's those are my quick thoughts on that. Yeah. And then just talking about, obviously, being a journalist and what what the world has endured, unfortunately, in the last couple years with so many that have lost lives. But also, obviously, for you to access some of the players, was that challenging for you in the last couple of years? Were you able to access quite a few of the players for your stories? You know, Jill, the thing is, I think when all this began, I think we all realized it was bigger than anything we'd seen in our lives, at least in my life. Um, so we knew that exceptional things were going to be required to keep things going. And I think everybody was just very happy to have, have a job and to be able to get the access right. virtually over time at the beginning and, and just to get the events back off the, off the ground and running. I mean, I, I covered a couple of Grand Slams from a distance, a bunch of tournaments from a distance, including the you know, 2020 U.S. Open. But I was happy to be able to do it, yeah, and, course, and you just yeah. accepted those things. Yeah. But I, but now it's gotten increasingly difficult, I think, to do our job well, yeah. just because the access has been so limited. Personally, I think it's uh, other sports have have taken a, a quicker, I think, more understandable approach to access to players How for the media. So? I mean, golf in particular has been very, um, I think it's an outdoor sport all the time, unlike tennis, which can be indoors. But the uh, access to interviews has been face-to-face, even though it's been distanced, mm-hmm. and there's... 
been a human connection. I feel tennis is still trapped a little bit in an older model, and I think it's time to change if they can. I don't think I know all the reasons, yeah. but I, my sense is that it's really it's really hurt the coverage of the sport. Yeah. It's lacking uh, the depth and the perspective that it needs to be to be its best. I mean, I think for me, I feel like that human connection is is so important. I when you were doing, I mean, I'm assuming you were doing some Zoom calls, quite a few Zoom calls. Would you feel like in those Zoom calls you were still able to get more of an in depth interview, or you was it more challenging? than in person you know I don't know if it's generational partly as well I mean I really you know to me I think face to face you can see somebody's reactions there's that sort of um, you both made an effort to be there Mm -hmm. you know you're both in front of each other somebody made an effort to get there somebody is accepted to do this face to face I think that just ties into our DNA somewhere there's a real Mm -hmm. uh, chance to have a real dialogue and, and interaction Zoom one on one it can work Mm -hmm. I did a you know bunch of pieces over the last year like that I don't think the news conferences work well at all on Zoom. Mm. I think that's very sterile, has no rhythm. Yeah. Because really, you know, the news conference, when it's good, is a rhythm. You right. get in there and there's like the questions flow. Right. People can instinctively know when there's a follow-up that needs to happen. People who are good at moderating will know all those sorts of things. And the, and the players also get in a rhythm. And that sort of group Zoom situation just kills all that. Yeah. Very, very difficult, I think. Yeah. And as far as, um, I mean, this kind of segues into what I, what I what else I wanted to ask you, which is like marketing more players, because that human connection, I think, is so important to tell because so you, you get invested in the player. Um, what, what would be your strategy for you as a writer to be able to market maybe like a larger range of players? That's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm not in the marketing business. I'm in the more covering business right. in the sense that I, my, my idea is to get more quality access and better stories and more access to the truth about these people and getting to know them. Because, you know, let's face it, tennis, a lot of times you have a good sense of who might be the superstars of the future, and you know that pretty far in advance. I mean, people are talking about these players. You have a, an idea of, of what the group that's going to be carrying the game forward is going to be. You don't always know who's going to exactly make it, right. but you have a good sense. So I think as a journalist... you don't, too. Sometimes it does surprise yeah. you. You're right. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I mean, Cam Norrie's... People like that with his uh, his great season this year, how much I would have seen that coming. Yeah, it's players that emerge like that for sure. But I feel like uh, as a journalist, and I think it's just to everybody's benefit. The more you can get independent, quality journalists, you know, with good codes of ethics, in front of athletes in a situation where they're relaxed, they're able to be themselves and tell their stories, mm. and do that you know, early in the career, the earlier the better. I think that's all to the positive. Yeah. And has social media changed the way you write it all? Because, I mean, so many people, so many players now obviously have their own accounts and they're just tweeting and giving out little tidbits here and there all the time. Has that changed the way you approach your stories or anything like that? Well, it's changed so much. I mean, especially with the major stars in the sport. The big changes there is that, I mean, I talk about this in the book, actually. There's a section when Roger Federer had mononucleosis and nobody knew. And uh, he was kind of having a dip in form, and there was a lot of speculation that you know, it was because he was, he was fading and the new generation was rising. And it was a time when careers were shorter and it didn't seem unthinkable that was happening. But Roger had mono, and, and he wanted to get the word out. And he was tired of hearing these questions, and he was tired of the speculation, but there was no social media. Mm-hmm. These days he would have just typed up a right, nice little uh, – right. or texted up a nice little message and put it out there, and it yeah. would have been it. But he needed a messenger in that time. So it was me and the New York Times, and we broke the story. So – those, that role is, has changed. Right. It might still exist for a player who doesn't have much of a following, much of a reach, but probably not. So I think it's in terms of breaking news, issues of the day that need to be addressed by a player directly, they'll go straight to the public on that instead of through us. I can understand that, but I do feel like uh, as a public consuming information and trying to find things you can trust, ultimately that is really 
very managed, right. very much public relations. And so if you as a, as a consumer of news want the truth, I think you still want somebody who's going to try to look at it objectively and balanced and try to you know, not give you uh, just one perspective and also ask follow-up questions, which are so important. Uh, is, that, is that the key then? Because I was wondering like, how you approached asking questions now because there's so much instant access to all these players' ideas and what and what they want to put out to the world on social media. Sure, but that's also, and to their credit, that's very much their their right to do so. They're, they're the ones managing that agenda, and as they should. I mean, that's, that's their vehicle. They're going to use the vehicle to what they feel is important and what they feel they want to get out there. Often it's sponsor-driven, as I'm sure you've noticed. All that's to the good. But I still think there's a really important uh, role for independent media to play in terms of portraying and bringing a, a player to life for the for the audience yeah and as far as because I know a lot of it you know mental health then gets involved um, as we saw like Osaka taking a step back because felt like oh, she was overwhelmed with the media do you feel like there's an importance to have a little protection of the players or or how would you control that a little bit I think the ATP media staff would tell you already and and you as a former player would know this too on the WTA side but there is already a fair bit of um, thought that goes into that process. Right, right. And if somebody's really not able to come into press right after a match that they lost or for some reason, I think there's a lot of leeway there. Yeah, yeah. Some players are, are notorious in our world, rightly or wrongly, for being super late getting in there. And our deadlines are already over, but they're taking the time they need to compose themselves. Some players use that forum as therapy. They kind of come in and just talk it through, and then they help them get through the process. I've seen that many times over the years. What you need, though, is you need – you're always going to have people come in as outliers into that world – that want to ask some questions that have been asked a million times before, and you all heard them as players. And it's like the umpteenth time. I mean, how often did you get asked about Rhode Island? I'm sure plenty of times in your yes, career. and exactly. college. Exactly. And the Serena <laughs> match at Wimbledon. Yes. How many times? Yes. So you know that's coming. But as a professional, you can understand. At least yeah. they're interested and curious. But what you need is you need a core of people who follow the sport regularly, who know the rhythm of a player's career, and also know not not to push the buttons gratuitously. Right. They're going to send them over the edge and have some empathy is what it comes down yeah. to. Right? I really feel it. And honestly, I have to say that existed a lot more earlier in my career in the press room than it does now. And yeah. I think that would be something we could all work on to improve. I think it would I think it would benefit the sport. I think you've always been lot. good at that. I mean, you interviewed me many times and I felt like that deep level of trust right from the beginning. Yeah. I did. But I think I think for me, just to make this point, like college was brought up over and over again all the time. And to me at the time, I didn't realize why it was such a big deal because that was just my path. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think maybe educating the players, I don't know what you think about that, Edu- educating the players of knowing that this is the story that we want to tell for you, to market you, really. Yeah, you're in a global sport, and you're going to be going to different places. And no matter how much social media might seem like it's universal, it's really only being consumed by a very small mm-hmm. chunk at a time. You're going to get X or Y or Z question many times, Jill or Felix or Denise or whoever it is, it'd be very helpful for people to realize that and understand why it happens. It's not a negative. Mm-hmm. It's a sign of interest, and it's a sign that uh, the sport has got, is reaching beyond its usual silo to get to new audiences because the people in the silo aren't going to ask that question again. They've already heard the answer. Right. But people outside of it, if they're asking, it's because you're hitting a new audience, a new yeah. public with that response. Yeah. And that's a better way to look at it. And that's something, that, to be honest with you, you asked about Roger and the lessons you learned from writing the book. Right. That's one of the big ones. Roger has his faults for sure. But he's, he's a master, really, hence the title, at taking the best out of almost all the situations that other guys find to be drudgery a lot of times in tennis. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a sponsor meeting, whether it's a press conference, whether it's an interview, whatever it might be, or how he manages his practice sessions, maybe not the most intense practicer, but he, he does it mm-hmm. in an intentional way. He founds, finds a way to, to give meaning and, and ride a learning curve of his own 
in all these different settings that he puts himself in. And I think a lot of us could learn from that, and players especially. Yeah, I mean, do you feel like that's, I mean, obviously it's the team around the players that would be influential in those moments. Yeah, or it's, you know, the generation before saying, hey, kid, this mm -hmm. is how it works. Yeah. You know, don't get upset about that. This is the way it works. And oftentimes, i got to say, it's been a negative influence from that over the years, mm -hmm. too. I mean, I, I don't know if, like, the Connors McEnroe generation would have been at their time saying, hey, guys, you know, just roll with the media. Be no problem, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a situation that's, in my view, in my time, unique. You have guys like Nadal and Federer and, to some degree, Murray has been with the British press all along. Right who I think really get it. Yes, I, I understand agree. understand the value of it. I totally it. agree. And they also have grown into being representatives of the game in a bigger sense, mm -hmm. not just themselves. Yeah. And I think they all get that. And yeah. I think Novak does as well. Yeah. And that that gets passed on to the next generation, the Zverev, Tsitsipasas, et cetera. That'll be a great gift to the future of the game because I don't think that's always been the case. And this is a good opportunity right now. Chris Clary talking with Jill Krabus. And from the written words to TV now and a player already looking beyond the current day job. I'm getting to chat with Nicholas Monroe. You have been coming for my job over the last year <laughs> or so. Uh, it, I, I joke because you're obviously still doing incredibly well on the double side, but also now going the broadcast route. What are the differences you notice between those two roles and how have you tried to balance them? Wow, I mean, it's definitely... Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, but it's definitely a different craft, the broadcasting. Um, you know, it's it's funny, like working for Tennis Channel, I'm, I'm learning from some of the best. You know, I'm learning from Ted Robinson and Mary Carrillo and Jim Courier. And so literally taking notes every day about, you know, just kind of, you know, my job as an analyst is to tell why something's happening. So, you know, which, which obviously I've been around tennis since I was four years old and that's when I started playing. And so, been you know, and still around the game playing the top guys. So it's, you know, I can talk about tennis all day. So to tell the why something's happening and what's happening in a match is something I feel like I'm pretty good at. And, and hopefully that comes across in, in commentating, but uh, it's a lot of fun as well. It's a, it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm having a blast and it's great to have the fans back. So that kind of brings extra energy to the broadcast. And so, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. What's the biggest challenge you've noticed in terms of uh, adjustments? Yeah, yeah, it's one thing to be able to talk about tennis. Yeah. It's another thing to do it on television. What's the biggest adjustment? The biggest adjustment, too, for me is I know a lot of information as far as about each player. So you, you kind of you have to try to tailor what you kind of say on, on TV and, and what you kind of say out there. But it, it, one of the things, uh, who was it, Courier said was like, well, you know, make sure if you're going to say something on TV, make sure you would say it to that person's face. <laughs> you know, so so anyways, that's, I think that goes with anything. But but it's a, it, again, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, I make sure I study it. You know, I do know the players. I know their games, but I still study every night before I'll watch some like two, two or three matches of each player uh, the night before so that I go in kind of knowing even more about their game and then also I'll you know look them up on on Google and Wikipedia and and just so I learned a lot of information about each player so there's there's not really um, a huge something completely different that it's tough to kind of figure out you know it's just yeah doing your homework um, and, and just having fun with it you know it's a lot of fun how are you balancing it with the career on the uh, in between the lines? Yeah, I mean, Tennis Channel has been amazing with me as far as, you know, I tell them kind of my schedule, what I'm looking to play, and then they'll tell me what they may, might have available. And then and then they've been very good with me as far as figuring out what weeks can work. And, uh, and again, yeah, there might be some weeks that I'd like to play, but then there's a week open there in Tennis Channel. So so I'm just trying to balance both. I mean, I've, I've found that I'm in L.A. more than I'm even home anymore. <laughs> so so I haven't been in Austin, Texas very, very much this year. But uh, uh, no, but it, it's fun to be in Santa Monica where the studio is. And, and again, they're being very flexible in my schedule. 
you've managed over the last several years to partner with a lot of the younger guys. Um, and I, I don't mean to say that you're old by yeah. any means, as an old guy myself, but how has relation, those relationships come about where you're partnering with Francis Tiafo, some of those guys? Yeah, no, I mean, again, look, I, yes, as you said, I'm 39, I've been around for a while, so I, I've seen those guys come up and, and you know, come up. I mean, they're still young, but again, like, you know, they've been on the tour for a few years and, and I, you know, I try to just talk to all the players, you know, just, you know, create a friendship and practice with the guys, whether it's Jack Sock or Tommy Paul, you know, we played French Open and made quarterfinals last year, two years ago, whatever it was. And, and uh, just kind of have a good time with the guys, go to dinner, you know, maybe have a drink. But again, it's, it's, um, you know, also I want to give them maybe a little experience that I have, you know, it's, I'm 16 years older than Francis, which is crazy to <laughs> yeah. say I was driving when the guy was born <laughs> so uh so we, we still talk about those things a lot like just how crazy that is but i try to give a little experience to the guy and and uh just try to help him out as you know when he's on the court off the court what to do what not to do and but we also have a lot of fun on the court you know and just uh i think i think people can feel our energy when we're out there together um and so yeah we just try to bring bring a positive positive vibe out there what are some of the things that you did when you were 23 uh <laughs> that maybe you're trying to steer him away from <laughs> well you know because it's funny obviously i I went to University of North Carolina, graduated when I was 22 years old, and and you still are kind of in that college life at 23 of you might want to go out more than you should and and uh you know now this is a job this is our profession you know we and obviously Francis is doing a great job Tommy Paul Taylor Fritz doing a great job of really staying focused putting in the hours and on on court off court but again just just the discipline uh day in and day out that it takes to to try to be the best and then also just you know a little bit of strategy things that I'll see on the court I mean I, I did play singles so I was 30 years old and 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 uh so again strategy some discipline some fitness i mean I, they, everyone knows I, I love fitness and i, I i'm gonna get I, to uh, that yeah and uh so i try to kind of instill that that vibe and and feel into some of these younger players that all right after we finish let's get in the gym or let's get on the bike let's go run run on the track you know just just some different things just to also have fun with it i i don't mean to push you towards a coaching route, but I, I do wonder if you have <laughs> any ideas when you're on court with Francis, Tommy, about how, what are some of the things from the doubles side that they can incorporate when they're playing singles? No, I mean, I think the doubles is huge for a guy like Francis and Tommy. You know, I, I've, I've really, when I play with those guys, I try to have them poach a lot or I try to use eye formation and have them come up and be athletic. And so that's the same thing in singles where they can be more athletic, look for the short balls, hit and come in, use their athleticism. I mean, a guy like Francis can do so many different things. So again, he's realizing how much the doubles is helping him. And also the doubles is giving him more matches. He's getting more time on the court. Um, so yeah, it's all positives. It's interesting because you know I, I've noticed as a lot of players are, are frankly a bit exhausted at this point. So it's I'm noticing some of the doubles quality maybe is not quite where it could be for with some of the singles players because frankly, their bodies are just worn out. Yeah, I mean, it, it, look, I mean, for some of the guys from Australia or New Zealand, they haven't even been able to go back home because of COVID and the two-week quarantine that they would have to go through. So yeah, I mean, they've been on the road since after Australian Open. Um, but yeah, yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah, it's a long season. I mean, obviously we all know as tennis professionals, our season's basically till November, January to November. So we have a long season and it's just about being smart about the weeks you take off, um, how much time you take off in those weeks and, and what you do. So, um, so again, it, 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 that's why you try to have the right team around you to help you that might know your body well. And, and even though you might want to play, you know, you need that team around you. You say like, look, let's take three days off and then get back on it and then get ready for the U S open or whatever that might be. So, um, so yeah, it's just about being smart. 
Speaking of bodies, um, you are not afraid to show yours, my friend, on, on Instagram. Um, you, you spend some time in yeah. the gym. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like it is truly a passion for you. And, yeah. and where did that come from? Uh, I, I, for me, I just feel like that's one thing you can control. You can control how fit you are. You can control how long you can last on the court. You know, if you, if you go out on the court and you feel fit, then you feel like you can do anything. Whereas a singles player, you feel like you can last three, four hours and you can serve and volley. You can do anything necessary in the heat, if it's hot, humid, whatever. And so I just feel like the, the gym and fitness is one thing you can definitely control. If you go out on the court and the guy plays unbelievable that day and beats you, okay, so be it. But it wasn't because I didn't, I'm not going to lose because I'm not fit. So that's one thing I want to make sure even, yeah, okay, for doubles, it's maybe an hour, hour and a half match, but you still want to feel like you're athletic. You still want to feel like you've done everything you can do to be ready for the match. If I walk on the court knowing, man, I should have ran a few more sprints yesterday, or I should have jump rope two days ago. Like I try not, I try to make sure I don't leave any stone unturned. And then if I lose the match, I lose the match. And I did everything I could to be ready for it. Um, so I feel like that's a mental edge that I try to bring to my tennis. And I feel like for most athletes and, and obviously the top players, they're focused on the fitness and they know how important it is. Um, so, yeah. What's, what's the difference for you between the strength side, though, and the... Uh, cardio, you know, aerodynamic, whatever. whatever I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm half and half. I mean, yeah. I, I lift Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I'm doing cardio every day. So, so along with the lift, I'll do cardio after that, and then Tuesday, Thursday, I'm only doing cardio for 30, 45 minutes. Um, so, again, so it's kind of half and half. And each Monday, Wednesday, Friday, each lift is full body. So I'm kind of hitting every part of the body. And 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 again, I, I'm 39 years old, so I'm not getting any younger. So I want to make sure I'm as strong and as fit as I can be to try to be the Tom Brady, you know, go to your 44 and, and still feel like you, you got it, you know, and I still feel like I have the, the quickness and the, and the hops to get up. And, and, uh, and again, I just enjoy it. I enjoy being out here. I enjoy the grind. I enjoy, don't mind living out of a bag and doing what's necessary. Luckily my wife is, is okay with all that. So, so, so we're in, we're in good shape. You know, the, the physical side though, you've got Prakash Amitraj, uh, with the tennis channel. Uh, and for people who don't know, if you if maybe if you're outside of the U.S., I mean, the guy is absolutely ripped, yeah, yeah. jacked. How do you compete with that? Well, well, okay. Well, when Prakash used to play, he was also fit as well. But it, you can't be as big as Prakash is and play tennis anymore. That so, is true. so I'd like to get him on the court now and play some baseline games. We we <laughs> we we played a lot back in the past, and we've grown up together. And and so we we always joke about the fitness side of things. But but yeah, I, I I'm not going to try to compete with that that amount of jacked that he has right now. But when I finish. Okay, then I might start trying to compete with him on that on that side of things, but not right now. Nicholas Monroe speaking there with Mike Cash, an ATP tennis radio reporter and one of the lead commentary voices on the Challenger Tour. The second half of this week's show is really all about Russia and two men in particular, one of whom has booked his place at the season-ending NITO ATP Finals. That's Andrei Rublev, and he's coming up shortly. But first... And with more of an outside chance of making it to Turin is his countryman, Aslan Karatsev. Before the start of the year, hardly anyone even knew Aslan Karatsev's name, but he made a huge splash at the Australian Open, reaching the semi-finals as a qualifier before claiming his first ATP Tour title in Dubai a month later. He also beat Novak Djokovic in Serbia en route to the final there and has kept the momentum going, winning a second title in Moscow just this week. So where, when and how did it all start to fall into place for the 28-year-old? Jill Krabus posed the question. Uh, I think it's more, mostly the mental part. Like, uh, start to believe in yourself. Mm. Like, I had uh, 
people in the past was uh, was working with them and uh, they keep telling me oh you have to believe more in yourself but how to do it no one explain right so no one uh, really does it so last three years after the injury i was working hard with my team and yeah through the hard work the belief comes and it just happened in 2020 after the pandemic also takes time also takes time the transition tour when they changed the ranking i was like 800 and i supposed to play this uh, transition tour to get mentor to the challenger so i playing futures and then challenger so it takes time and then the, after the pandemic uh, i played the exhibition matches in the states in saddlesbrook and yeah after that i felt very comfortable i had a lot of matches i was winning that matches it wasn't important but i was practicing and doing the preparation physical preparation during that matches so it was like one month there in saddlesbrook and then I started to play the challengers in Czech Republic. I was uh, final, winning two, and I was uh, 120 in the ranking, if I'm not mistaken. And then m- my goal was to be top 100 last year, and I try everything what I can, like I play every week, <laughs> try to get the ATP. I uh, passed qualies, passing only one round. I had the opportunity to play a Mandro San Petersburg, they gave me the wild card. I passed one round, the second round lost to Kachano, cramping. And uh, I went to Challenger again just to take the points. I couldn't couldn't ha- uh, make it, so I started the year with a qualifying mm-hmm. qual- uh, qualification in Doha. And yeah, playing well there. I was uh, not a bit luck, I would say, a lot of luck not to get the COVID flight. Uh, oh, so you didn't have to quarantine, is what you? Yeah, you I didn't have to a, quarantine, right? Because I you had the normal quarantine, not the hard quarantine. The normal quarantine. Yeah. Okay. I supposed to fly in the. In the COVID flight, yeah. the they they, they made a mistake. Only mm-hmm. two players flew the healthy flight. Okay. I would say, me and I think in Tomic. Okay. And yeah, we're arriving there. I, w- we are bu- I was able to practice with my coach, uh, start the preparation, and mm-hmm. then we played ATP Cup. It was a fantastic atmosphere to play with the team. We had an incredible team, and yeah, I think it's give me some uh, confidence to play in big arena. Uh, I think I played twice in the John Ken Arena, mm-hmm. once in the uh, Rod Lever Arena. Right, right. And then uh, <laughs> when the Australian Open started, yeah, I felt uh, confident. I just focusing on my game and just by match by match, I was keep winning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the accumulation of those matches really helped. I mean, you've said a few things that I'm curious about what let's start with the ATP Cup obviously um, being in that team atmosphere um, that was when a lot of people started to learn your name a little bit more especially and then going into the semifinals as a qualifier to the Australian Open but your teammates in particular had called you the secret weapon the whole time because they knew how dangerous you could be how talented you were what does that mean for you coming from from your teammates to hear that <laughs> I mean, did you I, hear that? Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the Medvedev was said once in a press conference when we're sitting, everybody sitting there in the uh, yeah. pickup press conference. But it, I think it was kind of a joke. But <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, no, <laughs> you, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> you proved it, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was playing well. We played well. I was uh, I had the opportunity to play doubles, all the doubles, mm-hmm. but we lost it. <laughs> I lost all my match doubles, and 
we had uh, two match points against Japan. It was an incredible match. Somehow we lost it, I don't know why. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we was uh, in the final, we didn't play, it was 2-0, but yeah, we won the HP Cup. Myself, I was losing all the matches. <laughs> so <laughs> but they had you there mentally. You were there to, to, to hold the mentality together. <laughs> yeah, it was, well, it was nice to play. I mean, it's a yeah. nice tournament. It was nice, to, it was nice to be on the team, yeah. like to prepare every match, uh, to be there around, to practice. Uh, once Australia start, yeah, I had time to, mm-hmm. I think, one or two days to mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And, so, and then going from there, obviously, you've had that continued success. You won your first ATP title in Dubai. That's a lot of players go for that first title. Just the emotions that you felt when you got that first title. What did that, what was that like for you? It was important. I mean, I I played Doha and I lost team. Also Mm. winning first set and then dropped down the energy, losing to Dominic team, but we won doubles with Rublev. So it's, I was keep, keep winning. And then arriving to Doha, first match was tough. Uh, we changed the, I mean, the, it was different surface. And in Doha was super slow. There was a uh, much faster, I would say. And I was struggling a bit in the first match, like try to find the rhythm. And then I had uh, some close matches, like against Evans, uh, Sonego. So it was really tight. And yeah, it was important win just to to prove myself that the level that I had in Australia, I keep, right. uh, I keep it, I keep the level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you've mentioned doubles a, a couple times since we've been chatting. How is it? I mean, I, you won the silver medal in Tokyo playing for your, your country mixed doubles. Congratulations! Got to the finals of Roland Garros mixed doubles. Talking about that again, like the the emotions of being able to play the Olympics, is that a different kind of pressure? And what was it coming through to be able to get that medal? Uh, yeah, Olymp. I would say the pandemic go f- to my se- to myself. It was really helpful. I okay. mean, without the pandemic, I will not be able to play all the Olympics game. The Olympics should be last year, right. so I was not able to play. And everything with the pandemic, all the stuff. So I was able to play this year mm-hmm. the medal, the Olympic Games, and uh, we sat with Vicina. I wrote her after Dubai, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's try to play mixed doubles, and she was not. Uh, she wasn't practicing. She was after. Uh, she was pregnant, and then uh, she was off for two years. If I'm yeah, not mistaken. she had just yeah. come back. Yeah. And she said, "Okay, let's see if I will be able to to play." And then she tried to practice. It's, she started to practice, keep moving, keep moving. And then uh, suddenly we, we decided to play Roland Garros mm-hmm. just to prepare for, we'll see how it's going. Mm-hmm. Prepare then, for the Olympics, you mean, right? Yeah. yeah. We said, okay, let's try to play Roland Garros, Roland Garros and then uh, we'll see. Mm-hmm. And then we, af- after winning the first match, we, we felt like uh, pretty confident and just keep winning. And then we are there in the final. Mm-hmm. Final was... Uh, Pretty funny. I mean, we we won the first set, leading already this in the second, and then just one two mistakes, and then we lost the match. <laughs> like everything can change in doubles really quick, and yeah. So we was happy to be there in the final, especially for her. Like especially also for me, it was the first time in the Grand Slam final, and yeah, we said okay, we playing Olympics together. We went there, play unbelievable. We beat some good players, and then in the final was uh, yeah super tiebreak. Mm. Everything could happen. We mm. had a match point, so 
Yeah, also. Yeah. Silver medal. It's a massive, great achievement. It's uh, something special. Yeah. When you play Olympics, you have you play for your country. Right. It's uh, different emotions. You have it only once per, for for four years, so it's different tournament. Can you can you maybe try and describe the different emotions that you felt playing for your country? How different it is than than coming week in and week out on the tour? Uh, yeah, you get you get more nervous. Mm. You, you sp- of course, you everyone get more nervous. Uh, like you had. Uh, I would say I'll describe it like you have the opportunity. You have, you have the opportunity to imp- represent your country, yeah. and you try to do your best yeah. not to fall down in the yeah. first or second round. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I mean everybody get nervous. So uh, for me, it was special. I think for all of us, for the Russians especially, some countries they don't care about the Olympics and they mm. they didn't even play. Mm. So yeah. Also need to focus, of course, on the finals of Serbia where you beat Djokovic. Um, I know you've had a lot of great wins already, but um, you know to beat some, someone like Djokovic, I know that was an emotional moment for you, a great moment for you. Um, how, what did you learn from that match? What were you able to take away from that one? Uh, of course, he didn't want to lose in, in your hometown, and he tried his best. And the first, for the beginning, he was I, you can you could see he, he did a lot of mistakes from the beginning, but uh, suddenly I had the feeling that I played against the wall. So he didn't miss, mm-hmm. so I have to do everything by myself, so I, he just pushed you on the limit. Mm-hmm. So after that match I was, was completely empty, and I tried to recover for the final, I was not 100% there. Mm-hmm. We had a good match with Berrettini, mm-hmm. uh, losing the match, but to play against Novak, yeah, to, to beat this kind of player, I mean, it's, I think three of them, it's another stage. So mm-hmm. when you play against them, you feel the different, so they if you want to beat them, you have to be on your on your max mm-hmm. and on the limit. I love how every time I, I give you a compliment about how your success, you always compliment your opponent. I think that's very nice. You're so humble, is what I'm saying. Do you know humble? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're so humble. I mean, I think it's great with what you've achieved so far. You're always complimenting your opponent, which is very nice. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. The other thing I wanted to talk about, I'm sure you've been asked about, is, of course, the Nito Finals very close in the race getting to the NATO finals is that something on your mind of course I just brought it to your attention but is that something you think about as you're playing or you're just what exactly try is? not to think about it yeah. just try to focus on my work on my game and I have to do be I have to be there every day to mm-hmm. show my best game that what we worked before so yeah just try to focus every match mm. Well, I mean, just looking over your season, congratulations, really. It's been fun to see you rise up in the rankings, and we appreciate your your time and your generosity. Thank Thank you you. so much. Thank you very much. And best of luck. Finally this week, from one Russian winning the mind games to another, Andrei Rublev has also had the year of his life in 2021 and recently joined up with WTA star Arena Zabalenka to talk about the mental side of the game for the latest edition of Tennis United. So, Andre, how is the ATP locker room looks like? Are you like having conversations, having fun, or because I'm the person who is like spending like maximum 15 minutes in the locker room just to try to get changed and just go and to do my own things like prepare the match or like eat or whatever. So, but usually I'm not really speaking with the opponent. What about you? 
No opponents for sure not, but sometimes if I see the friend, some, yeah, friend, uh, I can talk to him. Me, I'm a bit lazy, so while I arrive to the locker, I check my phone for 40 minutes. Ah, that's also uh, happened no, to me. No, basically for me it's one minute, but on real life it's 40 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then I go to take shower and it's already afternoon. <laughs> no, it's, so. it's, it's also happened to me sometimes. You just, I feel mm. like it's a few minutes and you already check the time and it's like... You're late for much already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... Arina, before the matches, when you, I don't know, half an hour left, you have any routines that you like to follow? Uh, just my regular warm-up, actually, like maybe drink some coffee or whatever, make sure I'm ready for the match, and then just warm-up and uh, maybe some fun with the team and to get relaxed a little bit and go for the match. And every time it's the same warm-up? Actually, yeah, it, overall it's the same, same exercise. In the same, you know, you in know the same shower, in the same uh, spot? Well, I'm trying to stay away from these things, but sometimes... It's killing you, right? <laughs> yeah, you're like, it's, it's in my head, like, okay, I better go there. I can control it. <laughs> then I <laughs> change it. And what about you, actually? Yeah. Of course, the same. If I start to win, especially good matches, I go the same what shower for sure. What if someone in the same spot, in, in your spot? I mean, uh, normally... You'll wait, you no, you'll get away? No, I, I mean, me, I'm a bit different. I go always the far as shower as possible uh. so most of the players they are so lazy to arrive that far <laughs> so most of the time it's almost free always so you from the beginning of the tournament you're already thinking like to make sure that nobody will yeah, take your yeah. shower <laughs> till the end yeah. okay this is this is smart i have to follow your routine and you happen you you wait not really i'm like okay it's not about this it's about my tennis and what i'm doing at the court <laughs> <laughs> and then the forehand mistake, why I don't go to the same shower? <laughs> it's all about this, yeah. <laughs> so, you get nervous before the of match? Of course. I think everyone does, yeah. yeah? I mean, <laughs> all of us humans, so of course we're nervous, we're tight, the hands are shaking. This is yeah, normal. that's kind of normal, yeah, yeah, I agree. This is part of the sport, and in the end I think we get How addicted to, deal to it. With this, no, yeah. not even deal with it. In the beginning, looks like while we're playing, I think we hate this feeling, like, again, I'm super nervous. But as soon as if you take out this feeling from us, we, we are addicted, like we want to feel these emotions. Yeah, that's true. That's actually about these emotions. And, and then we try to find it somewhere else doing, I don't know, some adrenaline stuff to find this again, I think. Yeah, that's true. When happens that you're losing the matches, what you're doing? You want to destroy all the club? Yeah, sometimes I can. I, I throw my bags, I can like uh, bro broke my racket. You destroy the room in the hotels sometimes or no? Uh, actually, by the time when I get back to the room, I'm getting a little bit like cooler, so I'm I'm already like forget this shit, but but I can cry in the locker room a little bit, like when I like be so disappointed and like uh, sad and all these emotions. I think you know what I'm talking about. For sure, you're not crying. You're just destroying no, everything. I'm crying and destroying at the same time. <laughs> really? Yeah. I want to see you crying. <laughs> Yeah, because I can imagine like you crying, you're like, seems like really a funny guy. I heard a funny story about you, how you broke your wrist or something like after yes, the match, yes. yeah? It's actually not the funny story to be <laughs> honest, but... No, it was stupid. It was so many things going around outside the court. I lost three sets playing, I don't know, almost three hours. And I was up with a break in a third and then I get tight and lost the match. Yeah, and uh, I went back to the hotel. And uh, I mean, first of all, official version was that I fell on court. Just, uh, but then I said, I don't want to lie. 
I will say the truth. So in the end, yeah, I went back to the hotel straight after the match. I didn't even do recovery because I was really mad. And I wanted to go to shower. So I went to the bathroom. I closed the door and I didn't push hard enough. So the door opened. Okay, yeah, I was mad about this. <laughs> I closed again and again the door opened. I closed again, the door opened and after the third time I get <laughs> something clicked in your head. <laughs> something clicked and uh, okay what about uh, this I shoot you change right now so no, you will never I mean, do it again hopefully with the hands probably no but still doing some stupid things okay racket no to myself not to I prefer to do it to the racket you have to change yes I have frustration beginning to brew the funny thing was straight after the wrist when I recover, and the coach also was saying, at least now you learn, so you're not going to hurt yourself anymore. <gasps> and I said, yes, yes, and these things, now I understand everything. And I was practicing one day on grass in Eastbourne, and I couldn't put one ball inside. And you cannot hit the grass, because maybe they yeah, disqualify it's, it's, or... It's a big fine there. Or, I mean, even on practice, they can do something to you. Really? I think so, if you destroy the court, much court especially. So, and I shoot full power to my leg, and I break the racket with my feet. So, uh, and then my coach was looking at me, <laughs> no, he don't learn nothing. But hopefully you'll change one day. <laughs> so, Arina, it was nice to talk to you. Wish you all the best and good luck. <laughs> Thank you, you too. It was a nice conversation. <laughs> Our thanks to Arina Sabalenka and Andrei Rublev, also to Aslan Karatsev, Nicholas Munro, and to the New York Times tennis correspondent, Chris Clary. I'm Seb Lozier and we will be back with another pod next week as we gear up for the final Masters 1000 of the year, the Rolex Paris Masters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>